podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. And welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anyone, How the Idolization of Work Sustains This Deadly Lie, by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Publishing in 2015. In the last episode, we charted Bottomley's account of how modernity developed its beliefs about work, and how those beliefs have become an ideology sustaining the division in human life between the private realm of emotions and feelings and the public realm of work. This division is itself an expression of modernity's quest to overcome the reality of disease, death and grief by making the workplace one of the principal fora for the expression of the triumph of human reason over the natural world. In doing so, it makes the workplace an environment that is hostile to the full expression of human life, which in turn marginalises and silences those whose experience of work is harmful and degrading. In this episode, we examine Bottomley's contention that it is in this very process of silencing that we can discern a clue about the real relationship between work and humanity, precisely because that silence discloses what is hidden within modernity's claims about individual and social progress. So let us now turn to that exploration. This is Ergasia, Episode 20, Hard Work Never Killed Anyone, Part 2, Idolatry's Bitter Fruit, Silencing Suffering and Injustice. Bottomley begins by contrasting the silencing of those harmed by work with the role silence plays in Christian faith. In modernity, the silencing and marginalization of those whose experience of work has been harmful and dehumanizing is the very space in which we encounter the ideology of work as idolatry. This idolatry occurs in the divine, incontestable status with which the ideology of work cloaks modernity's construction of work and economy, hiding the bitter truths experienced by workers beneath an outward appearance of ultimate truth, one that must be consented to and accepted as both inevitable and universal by all people if they are to demonstrate their rational credentials and receive the necessary imprimatur as contributing members of society. This enforcement of consent facilitates a collective forgetting of the fact that the claims made by the ideology of work are idolatrous precisely because the idol which it has created, modernity's construction of work, is an entirely human production. 
In other words, work has become an end in itself rather than a means to an end. In short, a god created by human ideology, an idol to be submitted to and worshipped. The end product when an ideology is given the status of a divine idol is that the beliefs which sustain that ideology render entirely invisible any connection to the social reality which it purports to describe. The silence demanded by the ideology suffocates individuals' experience of suffering and injustice by inducing confusion and doubt about the truth of their experience. This is the silence of fear and complicity demanded by an oppressive idol worshipped in fear of the consequences of doing otherwise, or in desire for the promise of a good life which, it is claimed, only subscribing to the ideology can provide. By contrast, silence in Christian faith is the space in which reverence and awe for God arises. To the ancient Israelites, the name of God was so sacred that it could not be spoken. This silence was integral to both the reality and mystery of the God testified to and encountered in the Hebrew Scriptures. Only God knew the name of all things, and only God knew God's own name, for to know the name of something was to give one power over it. The point is that from the perspective of Christian theology, human work cannot be understood apart from our identity as beings made in the likeness and image of God. Called into being by God who knows both our true name and our nature, human work is not an end in itself but a means to the end of God's call that we live our lives in relationship with God and with one another. It is in and through this relationship with God that humanity has been created. The human self is a social self called to share with God the work of the ordering and transformation of the world. It is at this point that Bottomley makes the important note that in calling humanity in a, into a relational coexistence, God does not exercise oppressive power over human life. Indeed, it is in and through relationship with God that human beings are gifted both freedom and liberation. Knowing both our true name and our true nature, God does not exercise this knowledge oppressively in order to silence us, but in order to enable our full participation in relational living. Drawing on the work of the Australian theologian Chris Budden, Bottomley notes that in seeking relational life with humankind, God has freely elected to limit God's self in order to indicate that freedom is itself self-limiting and sacrificial precisely because it is relational. Freedom does not understand itself to be without limit or exercised absolutely over against the freedom of others. Rather, it is the limits of freedom marked through relational coexistence that define what it means to be human and what human freedom is. In this context, Bottomley notes two of the key beliefs about work which people hold today and which bind them to the ideology of work. The first belief is that work enables individuals to be self-reliant and autonomous, overcoming all the limitations by which they are bound and inhibited. Work, through the exchange of wages for labour, enables individuals to exercise control 
both over their present circumstances and their future destiny. The second belief is that work enables people to be self-integrating, that is to say it enables people to determine for themselves who and what they will be. In other words, work becomes the fundamental paradigm through which people create their own self-identity. The upshot of these two beliefs is the notion that the good life, material success, social credibility, financial security, personal autonomy, is the result of individual effort, of hard work. This notion is reinforced in the narratives of Australian political life. Politicians and national leaders of all political persuasions endorse and advocate the idea that those who work hard will be rewarded accordingly. But Australia is not unique in this regard. The ideology of hard work is the core belief of the globalised economy. This belief has become so pervasive, so taken as given, that it has become idolatrous, a form of distorted civic religion. The name of God is even evoked by politicians in the service of this idolatry. Bottomley notes a speech by Barack Obama after his election to the US presidency in 2012, in which he both endorsed the idea that hard work alone will grant the good life to individuals and society, and associated the progress he assured his audience would result from hard work with God's providential grace in human life. This association thus makes material success a moral virtue. Those who have succeeded have obviously worked hard and are thus of a high moral character, while those who haven't succeeded are clearly lazy and deserving of a moral judgment that silences any expression of their suffering and which erects unquestionable roadblocks to their claims for justice. It is in this context that Bottomley argues that the experience of workplace harm and injury is feared, not just for the experience of injury and harm in itself, but for the loss of personal identity, autonomy and moral worth which accompanies such experiences. The value which modernity places on work makes it the foundational source of all these virtues. To be injured or harmed at work and to be unable to work as a consequence necessarily implies the loss of these virtues. This fear is accompanied by four corresponding fears relating to workplace harm and injury. Firstly, that life will be more restricted. Secondly, that prolonged harm or injury will result in social isolation. Thirdly, that the view which others take of them as an individual injured or harmed at work, or their own unmet expectations of recovery, will result in the destruction of their personal identity. And fourthly, that as a consequence of being injured or harmed, they will become a dependent burden on others. These fears are often realised at the point of diagnosis, when an individual becomes overtly identified as someone with a work-related injury or illness. The belief that hard work creates human worth and personal success collides with the reality of their status as an injured worker and the implicit moral judgement that those who don't or can't work are of less worth and less deserving of success. 
spot-only notes a speech by former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard in 2012, in which she both lords the idea of hard work, based in her self-proclaimed identity as a child of hard-working parents, and in which she declares that her government believes in rewarding those who work hardest and not those who complain loudest. In the Australian vernacular, Gillard was in effect calling anyone who doesn't subscribe to the idea of hard work a whinger and a bludger, someone who feeds off the benefits produced by those who work hard without themselves making any kind of contribution. In other words, the ideology of hard work is imbued with a dehumanising idolatry that makes those unable to work because of work-related harm or injury effectively less than human, a subspecies of humanity whose moral value and entitlement to participation in full human flourishing is necessarily lesser than that of contributing citizens. The ideology of hard work interprets the experience of work-related harm in such a way that it fosters a belief in those who become ill or injured because of their work that they have only themselves to blame for that reality. Imbued with this spirit of self-identifying worthlessness, their fears are realised. Their lives become restricted, isolated, discredited, and a perceived burden to others. The upshot, Bottomley argues, is that the promise of modernity that hard work will bring its own rewards is a destructive lie. The ideological boundary which separates the worlds of work and home into distinct realms collapses in the face of the realities experienced through work-related harm. Suffering and injustice permeate every sphere of the ill or injured worker's life, highlighting the illusion of the initial separation. The promise that hard work will assure the future instead becomes an experience in which hard work has undermined and even destroyed that future. The condition of financial dependency which lurks unseen within the ideology of hard work and consumerism creates conflicts and tensions that undermine the quality of life and the personal and familial relationships of the ill or injured worker. To illustrate this point, Bottomley turns to research he conducted in 1996 among employees within the then recently corporatised water utilities in the Australian state of Victoria. This research casts a shadow over the proclaimed promises of such corporatisation, that it would provide increased personal and social benefits for the affected employees if they were prepared to make the corresponding effort with regard to matters like improved efficiency and productivity. In other words, work hard and the outcomes will be both rewarding and liberating. Indeed, the promise of employee empowerment that was one of the chief justifications for the process of corporatisation and privatisation was touted by the then Victorian government as best practice for promoting employee well-being. Bottomley notes that the language used by the Victorian government about this process often superficially mirrored the Christian language of freedom and personal and social transformation. The government argued 
that corporatization would enable employees to become self-fulfilled and self-realized because it would liberate them from the constraints of public service bureaucracies. It would enable employees to become empowered through a self-regulating environment that fostered a spirit of entrepreneurial productiveness. The reality, however, is that the corporatization and privatization process was driven by a neoliberal ideology that necessitated the reduction of government debt in order to allegedly boost the economy by providing incentives to the private sector to invest in areas being divested by government. The research conducted by Bottomley demonstrated that far from experiencing empowerment and self-fulfillment, employees in the corporatized utilities were subjected instead to a range of dehumanizing realities that impacted on both their professional and personal lives. These included the widespread loss of experienced staff through redundancies and other cost-cutting measures, which in turn placed enormous workplace pressures on the remaining less experienced employees, degradation of workplace conditions around training, wages and occupational health and safety, increased levels of stress, as well as corresponding diminishment of job security and workplace morale, and longer working hours, contributing to reduced quality of life, less time with families, and increased tension in familial relationships. The upshot was that the process of corporatization and privatization reshaped both the workplace and the lives of workers to meet the needs of the state, or more accurately, to meet the dictates of the economic ideology practiced by the state government of the time, as well as those sections of the private sector who would benefit most from the process. The effect was that despite the promises of self-fulfillment, self-realization and liberation made to justify both the corporatization process and the demand for hard work by which it was accompanied, affected employees experienced only a diminishment of what it meant for them to be human by robbing them of their freedom. Bottomley's point in all this is that ideologies become idolatrous when their ends become so absolute that they become the decisive determinant of human legitimacy and fulfilment. In doing so, they legitimize in advance every means by which the end may be obtained, and the end itself becomes an idol, an oppressive God-figure demanding absolute allegiance, and which is uncritically acclaimed as an object of universally agreed and accepted adoration. For Bottomley, idolatry is the problem of people putting all their trust in a belief system that has the power to blind them to the truths that speak directly to the heart of what it means to be human. Idolatry survives and thrives only for so long as it can silence the voices that speak these truths. When people blindly give their trust to and place their hopes in the idol they believe holds the key to their happiness and progress, voices of dissent or alternate experience are immediately suppressed as heretical. The ideology of hard work has become idolatrous in modernity 
precisely because it has assumed the condition of an oppressive secular religiosity that claims to decisively determine what it means to be human, which silences the voices of dissent, and which demands universal and uncritical obedience. But this supremacy comes at an enormous human cost. Those who protest the harm which is caused by modernity's construction of work and economy are either actively ridiculed or punitively marginalised as the enemies of reason and human progress. The task of standing in solidarity with those who suffer work-related harm requires an acknowledgement of the extent to which the idolatry of hard work has appropriated the hearts and minds of politicians, employers and workers. For the very act of naming the harm caused by the ideology of hard work and its idolatrous nature is to speak from the prophetic tradition of both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures and their witness to God's judgment upon the social, economic and political structures of the world that create suffering and injustice. Christian churches from many different denominations and traditions have a long history of speaking prophetically against the harm caused by modernity's construction of work and economy. Yet despite that history, many of those same churches have developed a kind of collective amnesia that has caused them to not only forget that history and withdraw from the world of work, but to actively facilitate the artificial divide between public and private, and thereby entrench the idolatrous hold over human life which the ideology of work exercises. Bottomley argues that if this condition is to be reversed, Christian churches need to develop a renewed vision of what it means to be a human person in a human community, one that attends to God's judgment against the ideology of hard work and which clearly unmasks its promises as false and its consequences as calamitous. The witness of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures is that the suffering and injustice engendered by idolatrous constructions of work and economy are not normative for human life and are contrary to God's will for flourishing humanity. Despite the claims made by the ideology of hard work, God is not limited to the creations of human labour. God is not a static idol, but a dynamic reality whose spirit moves through the prophetic imagination, seeking a politics of justice and compassion. But such a prophetic ministry will demand of the Church a fundamental re-evaluation of its relationship with and its complicity in the ideologies of modernity, a requirement that will demand that it listen to the truth located in the voices of those marginalised and silenced by the idolatry of hard work. And so, with that putting of the Church on notice, 
We leave today's episode of Ergasia. In our next episode, we will begin the exploration of Bottomley's argument for the creation of what he calls companioning pastoral care as the fountainhead of prophetic ministry. In the meantime, to leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.